we're in 2 Kings chapter 21. Uh, and as the page sort of turns from uh, 2 Kings 20 to t- chapter 21, we sort of have to get in our minds this idea that this is truly the beginning of the end for the people of God, especially the people of God in Judah. By this time in history, Israel has already been judged. They've already uh, felt the massive wave of judgment uh, that God has laid down on them by the hands of the Assyrians. And yet, even here, as we've seen, Judah is still clinging to a little bit of life. Uh, We've seen the great reform movements that happened under the King Hezekiah, and we know that there's something about Judah. It's the kingdom and nation of promise. It's It's the line that is carrying on the line of David and all of those great and awesome truths. And yet, as we come to chapter 21, that that life, whatever bit of life Judah has had, we could say, is all but snuffed out. As we see the course of events in this chapter, this is sort of the nail in the coffin, if you will, for the kingdom of Judah. As we see just untold, almost incomprehensible rebellion and corruption sort of explode onto the scene in the land of Judah. And so this morning, we're just going to look at that. I want to make sense of this entire chapter, this entire scene, as we see here in chapter 21, through three specific movements, we could say. Three movements by which we can understand this text. And hopefully it brings us to a greater and humble recognition of our own God, our own Savior, our own King here this morning. So first this morning, I want you to notice the surprise of a prolonged rebellion. The surprise of a prolonged rebellion. Because here, at the beginning, we have to just, again, get in our minds that this chapter stands in grave contrast to the chapters before it. Chapter 21, that is. If you remember, we have three specific chapters, chapters 18, 19, and 20, that all detail the life and the reign of King Hezekiah. That great king who brought Judah back to their knees, back on to their faces, so to speak, in worship and deference and obedience to the words of God. He leads this great revival, knocking down idols, tearing down images, tearing down all the high places that were there for all of those false gods. And he brings the people of God back to a right worship of God. It's a great series of chapters highlighting this sort of last of the great kings of Judah. And yet for all of those efforts that he put forth to be faithful to Yahweh, to bring Yahweh back into the limelight, all of that is basically massacred in very short order as we're introduced to his son. Yes, the very son of Hezekiah is this one named Manasseh who comes onto the scene and almost immediately sets about to sort of repeal and almost, we could say, reverse all of those very good accomplishments that his daddy accomplished. Notice verse 1 of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12, 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, 
that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And on and on it goes for the next several verses. Detailing the ways in which Manasseh was setting about to, uh, to rebuild every single site of idolatry and iniquity that his dad had decimated. And in fact, you could sort of do a comparison if you want to, looking at chapter 21 verses 1 through 6 and compare it with chapter 18 verses 1 through 8. Because this chapter with Manasseh is almost the reverse of chapter 18. Where in chapter 18, Hezekiah is tearing down idols. And Manasseh here is building them back up. He's taking all of those stones, all of those walls, all of those great images of idolatry. And he's making them large again. Making them great again. He's making them most prominent in the people's minds. He's restoring all of those awful religious practices. He not only failed, Manasseh did. To live up to his dad's level of faith and devotion to the things of the Lord. But he's actively plunging the people of God into all manner of atrocities. Into the pit of paganism. Again, notice verse 2. He did that what was evil in the sights of the Lord. Notice, according to the despicable practices of the nations. And then notice verse 3 at the end, and it says that he built, he had, excuse me, he had erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done. This is who he's taking his cues from, Manasseh is. The king of Judah, the one who is supposed to be the king in the line of David, the line of promise. And who is he taking all of his cues from? Who is he modeling his kingdom after? The nations and Ahab. The great stalwart of evil in the kingdom of Israel. He's basically saying, I want to be like them. They, they had it figured out. I want to make my kingdom like they had theirs. So he sets about and he brings Judah into all manner of false worship and disgusting, as the word is here, despicable practices. Notice verse 4. And he builds altars. In the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omen and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And on it goes. The rebellion that Manasseh sparked. But he even went further than that. Notice verse 9. Notice what the historian says as he's sort of, sort of summing up this level of evil that emanates from the reign of Manasseh. Notice verse 9. It says, but they did not listen and Manasseh led them astray. Notice, to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. His evil eclipsed even the evil of the nations that were there centuries before him. He was bringing them into further darkness, further sin, further depravity. Every dark and twisted thing he could get his hands on, he was promoting. He was bringing it before the people. It's almost like that 
That old song, anything you could do, I can do better. (laughs) That's Manasseh. Any level of evil that you think you can go, I'll go even further. I'll go further than that. All of these dark and twisted arts, these spiritual omens and practices he dabbles in, even burning his own son, which, if you remember from chapter 17, is one of the very specific things that God indicts Israel for. They had dabbled into child sacrifice too. All of these things were reinstated and promoted by Manasseh. And he even begins, as it says in verse 5, to worship the stars, the the quote-unquote host of heaven. He's looking at the sun and the moons and the stars, and he's looking at them, seeking divine counsel, worshiping them as gods. Going so far, as it says even here, to build an altar for sun, moon, and stars in the very spot where God was only allowed to be in the temple. I think this... Even though our eyebrows might raise at some of the other things. This, I think, is the most egregious evil that Manasseh commits. Where he is quite literally replacing Yahweh on the spot that Yahweh had reserved. And he says, for my name. Notice again verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. Notice verse 7. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I'll not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. This is his promise. This is his covenant. Him putting his signature there, my name, is him saying, in this place is where my presence will be felt. This is where I will dwell. And so long as you follow my words, follow my ways, I will not abandon you. And yet, what do we find here? The exact opposite is happening. God's people are far away from their Lord. Far away from where God had wanted them to be. And now they're openly and unashamedly replacing Yahweh in Yahweh's own house. That's the level of evil that Manasseh was okay with. He wasn't satisfied with God's word. It wasn't enough. So he seeks mediums. He seeks all kinds of other different religious ideas. And twice, did you notice, maybe you have, or I'll just bring it up to you again. Twice, the historian reminds us that this level of evil is worse than what Israel inherited when the people of God first came into the land. Notice verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 9, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Stretching back centuries, they've actually made things worse. They've totally defaulted and punted on what God had wanted them to do and to be. If you remember all the, the covenants 
that God has made with his people, specifically among them, is that promise and that assurance that I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. That was their commandment. That was their motive. That was their responsibility as the people of God. As the people of Yahweh, they were supposed to reflect the blessing of Yahweh onto the nations. And instead, what has happened? They've done an about face on all of the things that have to do with Yahweh, Jehovah. And they have become even worse than all the nations. They're not blessing anyone. They're becoming like the very ones they were supposed to change. Which again is the same charge that was brought against Israel and Samaria in chapter 17. All of this leads us to this. That God's people had utterly failed to conduct themselves as the people of God. Looking at Judah during these years of Manasseh's reigns. You would have no idea that these were the people of God. They were spitting on God's words, spitting on God's truth, showing that they had no care for the God who had delivered them out of bondage, who had promised atonement through his wisdom. And yet, all of that, most surprising to me in this text, at least these first nine verses, is that all of these atrocities, these great evils that make us shudder perhaps, are allowed to endure for 55 years. Verse 1 again, notice. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. This, you might know, is the longest reign of any king in either Israel or Judah. Out of them all, this is Manasseh's. Which might just be the most evil. There have been some guys that have come close. But Manasseh is regarded as one of the most evil kings in all of the kingdoms of the Lord. And he reigns for 55 years. And as long as he reigns, as long as he's sitting on that throne, there's just this stinking pile of sin festering next to him. And the kingdom of God flounders and festers and it stinks with the stench of decay and ruin. People, the people of God are rotting through all of this corruption. And the most obvious question is, why? Why did God let this cruelty persist for five decades Why did he let such corruption have its way, have this time of endurance for 55 years? Why not bring about some such calamity or conspiracy to get Manasseh out of the way, to shuffle him off? Why not do something, God, and stop this decline into insanity? It's a question that, it's it's a struggling question, isn't it? Why wouldn't God do something? These are his people. This is his chosen nation. And they're being led straight into destruction and disaster. I am positive that the faithful of God, the remnant, if you will, that were in Jerusalem at these days, were asking very similar questions. And the answer, of course, it's not perhaps the most exhaustive answer, but it's the answer that I think most fits is that even in these time periods, this, yes, even this, as hard as it is to believe, is part of the providence of God, which, yes, sometimes involves judgment. 
And sometimes judgment looks like a leader coming into power and bringing such things to pass. The great commentator on the Old Testament, Dale Ralph Davis, he says this. Sometimes inept and wicked rulers are not part of the reason for judgment to come, but are part of the judgment that has already arrived. And I think that this is very much the case with Manasseh. This is part of the judgment of God. The judgment of God for God's people turning away from him. This is not a, a moment in which they ought to be saved out of. This is part of God's judgment of his people for their prolonged rebellion against him. And basically he's allowing them to have what they've already chosen. A leader that leads them into more of the depravity they've already embraced. More of the sufferings that come at the hands of Manasseh come because God is judging his people for the ways in which they've turned away from him. And if you don't think that God's already doing that in these United States, you might need some more coffee. Because <laughs> I think that's exactly what we've been enduring for decades. <clears throat> Judgment for the people of God turning away from God himself because we've gotten our eyes on something else. We've gotten our eyes on something perhaps greater. And yet all that it proves to be is just more of the same. More corruption, more judgment, more cruelty, more violence, more hate. That is Manasseh. And yet, even too, even as this rebellion is prolonged, is elongated by 55 years, there's something else there too. Because even for all those 55 years, even as evil seemingly had its heyday, God forbeared. You see, I think even these 55 years, we are to see not just as a token of God's judgment on his people, but also as a token of his patience for his people. For 55 years, he lets them go their own way. Urging and praying and speaking to them through words of prophet after prophet to turn, to turn back to me. It's evidence, I think, of what Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's... I think decades like these, he's allowing the people of God to go their way, urging them through words of the Lord, through people, through prophets, to turn back to their one true God. And if you've wondered, have you ever looked around at the state of affairs in our world today and wondered why Jesus hasn't yet come back? It's the same reason. That's how patient our God is. That's how lovingly he cares for you and this world. He wishes that none should perish. None. Even the greatest enemy of this life you can conjure in your mind. God says, I wish that he would not perish, but would come to repentance. That is the heart of God. Yes, evil may seem to have its heyday. may seem to be winning the day, but it will not win in the long run. God is patient. 
It's merciful judgment. It's merciful because it gives the people of God the opportunity to turn back to their deliverer. The surprise of a prolonged rebellion is that it's not always about judgment. There's mercy in and through it all. But notice, secondly, the surprise of a prolonged rebellion, but secondly, the severity of a promised consequence. The severity of a promised consequence. Because, yes, God allows this to endure to bring his people back. He speaks for them through, through prophets, through untold messengers. And the sad part is, notice verse 9, but they did not listen. Some of the saddest words are those words. The people of God were basically plugging their ears, stopping their ears from hearing admonition after admonition of God, pleading with his people to turn and repent. I am your Lord. I am your God. I will restore you. I will renew you. I will remake you. And all of those warnings of repentance of repentance go on deaf ears. They did not listen. They continued going their own way. For all of God's patience, they kept stepping into ruin and exile, which earns nothing but this announcement of horrible judgment. Again, notice verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I'll forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. These are eyebrow raising words, are they not? Whoa, God is a little bit frustrated. In human terms, that's indeed how we could sort of understand it. He's fed up with his people's non-stop rebellion and pursuit of perversion and corruption. As he says, this has been going on since I brought them out of Egypt. This isn't a determination that God makes on the spur of the moment. Yeah, I'm really mad at these people. I'm going to wipe them as one wife a dish. No, this is centuries in the making. I've been patient. I've been trying to get you to listen. I've been trying to bring you back. But you will not listen. And because of your refusal to listen, because of your rebellion, I'm going to bring upon you the promised consequence that I warned you about all of those centuries ago. And it's going to be giving you exactly what you want. You see, that's their punishment. Their punishment is getting exactly what they've already embraced. Notice verse 12, where he says, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such Disaster. 
A word that probably conjures up images of ruins and carnage and wreckage. Interestingly, though, it's the same Hebrew word, disaster, is the same Hebrew word as the word evil, which is used in verse 2 and verse 6 and verse 9 and verse 11 and verse 15 and on it goes. Which is just to say that the very evil and misery that God's people had already embraced, he was going to give them. You've already embraced the misery of not following me. You've already embraced the distressful future of turning away from me. I'm going to give you what you really want. It's disastrous judgment. God has no joy for sure in bringing it upon his people. But they've already evidenced by this point in history that they've wanted this. He's patient with them, but now, as he says here, I'm going to bring upon you a consequence which will make all of the ears of all the nations who hear about it to tingle, to ring. That ringing in your ear that you get sometimes, that's what God says is going to happen when they hear about the news of how I've judged my own people because you've provoked me to anger. These people of God had failed to live up with this covenant, the covenant that he's made with them. And notice, go with me back to chapter, or to go with me back to Deuteronomy. Because we see exactly this sort of events unfolding, God promising his people exactly what would happen if they failed to obey his word. If they failed, These disastrous consequences would come about. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 1. And if you, the Lord says, faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, all your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And on it goes for several verses as we are explained That upon their obedience to God, there is untold blessing that follows. That's who God is. He's a God of blessing. He's a God who is rich in mercy and plentiful in love. And he delights to bring, as he says here, to overwhelm his people with blessings. This is the concrete assurance that they were given. And yet, if they did not obey... If they turned away from him, what would happen? Notice verse 58. In the same chapter, notice, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Affliction severe and lasting, and sickness is grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid. And they shall cling to you every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law. The Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you are, were numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. You shall be plucked 
of the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And therefore you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither knew you or nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. That's the consequence that he promises his people if they turn away from him. Words which are sobering for sure. Words which again ought to make us shudder. That now all of those awful consequences as we go back to 2 Kings, all of those are becoming a reality. As God describes this judgment that's going to come upon them, it's swift, it's disastrous. He uses the image as one wiping a dish. So will I wipe my people off of the face of this land. It's a stunning image. The idea that no crumb of Judean iniquity can withstand this divine dishwasher, if you will. You can't stand. I'm going to wipe it clean. Because this judgment was going to be total and swift and severe. And I think the startling lesson from all of this is that apparently Judah had crossed some sort of point of no return. Manasseh led the people of God into ruin. And if you jump ahead, go with me to chapter 23 and look at verse 26. Skipping ahead a week, this is after the great reform movement that comes from Manasseh's grandson, Josiah. And after, yes, even some reform movement that comes at the tail end of Judah's uh, lifespan. Notice what happens. Verse 26 of chapter 23. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. By which his anger was kindled against Judah. Because all of the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem. And the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. Even after the people of God find God again. God says what? I'm still going to bring judgment upon my people, because they've embraced everything that is opposite of me, and they've pursued sin, they've pursued disaster. Incredibly unsettling and settling thought, is it not? They had crossed this some sort of line where all of the, the movements of judgments that were set in motion could not be stopped anymore. And God says, I'm going to judge my people. I wonder this morning, have we crossed that point of no return? It's hard to know where that is. I'm not going to try and pretend that I know. Because I think even still in this moment, where are we as a church, as a country? We are in those days of delayed judgment. And delayed judgment is a moment of repentance. That's where I think we are right now. God has not yet unlocked the doors of judgment upon us fully. He is still speaking to us. 
The word of the Lord is still open. He is still speaking through his servants. The question is, are we listening? Verse 9 of this text says, God's people did not listen. Are we? Have we received these words of God in repentance and humility? That's how we should receive them. That God is telling us this is what's going to happen. And we receive them and bow our heads and say, God, you are the only true God. Or are we still like Judah here, plugging our ears and refusing to listen to this message of Yahweh? Only one response leads to restoration. The other response leads to ruin. And God has assured us of it. It will come. Because my holiness is so stringent, it is so high above even your thoughts, that it demands this type of response. The surprise of a prolonged rebellion, the severity of a promised consequence, but lastly, number three, and I'll hasten, the sorrow of a pitiful legacy. Because... As we see here, Manasseh has led all this. He's brought all this on the people of Judah. Brought all this on these people of Jerusalem. All of those horrible, heinous practices of religion and worship and faith and devotion and social sort of ways in which the kingdom was established. If you read 2 Kings 21 in full, it, it, it might just make you think that Manasseh was just another in a long line of kings who were evil, kings that we would rather soon forget. And indeed, if you look at verses 17 and 18, his sort of summary of his reign is nothing to write home about. However, go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Because here, the chronicler gives... A slightly different version of events about Manasseh. A version of events that makes his story far more tragic. Notice Second Chronicles 33, look at verse 10. Manasseh has done his thing, led people astray. And notice what happens. Second Chronicles 33:10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. But they paid no attention Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And notice, amazing, and God was moved by his entreaty, by his prayer, and heard his plea. And brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Near the tail end of Manasseh's reign, near the tail end of those 55 years, He's taken captive by these Assyrians, taken back to the nation of Babylon. And he sits in those Babylonian chains, sitting in that dark and dank dungeon. We could say, just like the prodigal in Luke 15, that he sort of has this moment where he comes to himself, where he realizes all that has transpired, all that he has made happen at, the hand, at his own hands. And just thinking about that scene, suddenly... His mind is flooded with all of those stories, all of those truths, all of those important words that his mom and dad had tried to instill in him as he was just a young boy. 
growing up with a mom and dad like Hephzibah and Hezekiah, he knew the words of the Lord. And Manasseh here, this horrible, reprehensible king, has a moment of grace. He's sitting in that dungeon. He's sitting in those chains, and he starts begging God, God, I have fallen away from you. And he starts entreating him. I would love to know what he prayed. Because it says that his prayer moves God. He prayed to him, it says, and God was moved as he heard his plea. Moved by these words of this repentant, awful king. So much so that he restores Manasseh back to his throne, back to his place in the seat of power, in the place in the house of Jerusalem. He restores him. And yet, interestingly enough, in 2 Kings, the historian makes no mention of that. Zero mention of that better ending, of that hopeful turnaround in Manasseh's life. All he's known for in 2 Kings chapter 22, at the end there, what is he known for? Verse 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's known for his sin. A legacy of rebellion. A legacy that was reprehensible, that was disgusting and despicable to say the very least. His legacy has nothing to do with this 11th hour turnaround. It has everything to do with this rebellion and To even prove that even more, his own son could not shake off this shadow of shame and rebellion. If you read verses 19 through the end of the chapter, Manasseh has a son named Amon who comes to the throne. And even though uh, in his old age, Manasseh had had this sort of coming to heart, this, this sort of heart change, Amon didn't see any of that. He only saw his dad's Iniquity, and that's what he felt compelled to emulate. Notice verse 20. And he, Amon, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. And he walked in all the ways in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served. Notice all of those things that Manasseh had done early on in his reign, those were the only ones that Amon ever felt like he could live up to. The iniquity, the sin, the rebellion. And eventually sees Amon succumbing to a horrible end, a horrible demise. As eventually we learn he's conspired against and betrayed and assassinated. Sort of the same end that fits all of the kings of Israel, if you recall. All of those conspiracies. And this, I think, is the true legacy of Manasseh's reign. His son being betrayed in a cloud of sin and sedition. Manasseh's life is a sorrowful tale of too little too late. He had his awakening, but he could not affect lasting change. The storehouses of sin that he had already stocked up for himself were too great to be torn down in his twilight years. And this is the thing, isn't it? It's interesting, this legacy that we have, that despite Hezekiah's son and grandson, how do we remember Hezekiah? Very favorably. 
He's a great king of Judah, even though his descendants are not. And how do we remember Manasseh despite his 11th hour repentance? Very poorly. I think there's a lesson in that for us. A lesson I would especially say of this for parents. If you were to judge Hezekiah by his son, you might be quick to judge him harshly. What happened to Hezekiah's son? Didn't you raise him right? Didn't you train him up in the way that he should go? As the proverb says. What happened to Hezekiah's son? I think the history of these couple chapters, Hezekiah and Manasseh, they prove especially one thing, that Proverbs 22.6 is not a formula. You know that verse, Proverbs 22.6? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's not a formula. It's the supposed ideal for faithful parenting. If parents are faithful in the ways in which they should instill God's word into the hearts and lives of their children, Lord willing, when they're old, they too will be able to do the same with theirs. But sometimes that doesn't work out, does it? Maybe there's parents you know or perhaps even your own, your own children you think about the ways in which they have veered off from where you had raised them. You think about the ways in which you worry about their souls. Because they're far away from what you had hoped God would have for them. Parents, you don't have to feel burdened by that. Parenting is not a recipe. Parenting is not... Proverbs 22.6 is not a recipe for parents that if you just plug in the right ingredients, you'll get a model kid. <laughs> I wish that were the case, but I can testify, and perhaps you can too, parenting is hard. And mostly it's hard because the control that I think I have, I'm learning that I don't have. In fact, that's the true lesson of parenting by faith. Because parenting is an act of faith, over which ultimately you have zero control. You can instill disciplines. You can, you can enforce rules all you want till you're blue in the face. Perhaps you've been there. But true lasting change, change that leads to a life of faith doesn't happen by you beating them over the heads. It actually happens by faithfully saying, God, you're the only one who has control over my kid's life. That's hard. I, I'll testify right here this morning. That's hard. Parenting by faith means giving up the hope that you can change or even, yes, save your children. Paul Tripp says this in his book on parenting. I think it's so true. Moms and dads, you're not the change agents in your kids' lives. You represent the change agent. That's all you're called to do and called to be. The ways in which sometimes perhaps, let me just say it this way. Maybe you feel this morning as though you've utterly failed. You failed at the, your responsibility to parent your kids and train them up in the way that they should go. And you fear that God is holding something against you for the ways in which you failed. Perhaps you feel this morning that you've gone too far. Like Manasseh, that 
You've crossed some sort of point of no return. I would say let Manasseh in that dungeon be a lesson to you. That God hears a prayer of repentance no matter where you are. He cannot wait to dispense grace to those who fall in their face. That's who our God is. He cannot wait to give you the mercy that's bubbling up inside of him. So parents, if you're feeling low this morning, there is mercy for you. Son or daughter, if there is something that you know for sure you've been running from, there is a God here this morning who has forgiveness that's ready to just overflow your heart and soul. Because that's who our God is. Wherever you are, wherever you've come from, Whatever baggage you think that you're carrying here this morning, you're here to hear one thing, good news. And that good news is this, that God's only begotten son, the true and better Josiah, if I can say it that way, is the only one who could redeem you and rescue you from all of your pitiful legacies and all of your prolonged rebellion. That's who he is. He's the Savior that goes out into the wilderness to save the lost ones. And he's the one who takes onto himself all of the despicable things that you and I have ever done. Every disastrous deed, every fumbling of our responsibility, every word that we have said that we wish we could have gotten back. Every single thought that is astray from the will and the holiness of God. All of those things and more. He's taken unto himself and paid for by having his own body ripped to shreds as a payment for your sins. That is the hope. And in that, in that payment, every failure disappears. That's the gospel. You may feel like you're an utter failure past the, no, the, the point of no return. But my friends, today is the day of grace. It's the day of good news. It's a day in which everyone is invited to entreat like Manasseh in that dungeon. Entreat the Lord for favor. To remember his faithfulness. And to say, God, I'm pleading the blood of your son. Wipe away my faults and my failures. Wipe away my sin. Wash me clean this morning. Because that judgment that's coming... The only thing that can stop it is the blood of the Lamb. The only thing that rescues you out of the judgment to come is the blood of this one. This one who's taken the judgment for you. Moms and dads, there's grace for you this morning. Grace which relieves you from the burden of saying, I have failed. Son and daughter, There's forgiveness for you. There's grace for you this morning. For every sinner. There is favor waiting in the heart of God. And he cannot wait to give it to you. Let us pray.